This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for June 3rd, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Lindsay and Eric, this week we published studies that address both how we diagnose COVID-19 and how we might or might not treat it. So starting with diagnosis, one of the difficulties with instituting broad-based testing for the virus has been logistics. I've seen the video on our website of how to obtain a viral swab. It requires someone with training and lots of personal protective equipment to obtain that sample safely. And this, of course, limits the availability of testing. But this week, a group of investigators suggested an alternative. What did they do? So these researchers asked how viral swabs collected by patients compare with those collected by healthcare workers. So they had a group of patients who were swabbed by healthcare workers, by professionals, who used the standard approach, which is the one in our video for obtaining nasopharyngeal swabs, which are very deep swabs. And the patients then were given instructions to obtain different sets of swabs, either by swabbing their tongue, by obtaining nasal swabs, or mid-turbinate swabs. All of those swabs then underwent the standard RT-PCR testing for the presence of viral RNA. Now, they tested more than 500 patients, but got different types of swabs from different patients. So the numbers don't all add up. But the different swabs were slightly different from each other, but basically they all had a sensitivity of about 90% or greater as compared to the nasopharyngeal swabs obtained by healthcare workers. And although the numbers weren't identical, the amount of virus as quantitated by RT-PCR correlated pretty well among the different tests. So this was not a perfect study. Uh, for one thing, of course, the gold standard was nasopharyngeal swabs. It's the only standard we have, but we know that they're imperfect to begin with. So while we were doing was comparing one test with another, and if we'd done repeat nasopharyngeal swabs, we may have obtained similar sensitivities. We don't know. We expect that there were false negatives among the nasopharyngeal swabs. And in fact, there were a handful of swabs obtained by patients that were positive when the nasopharyngeal swabs were negative. So it is possible that those tests were either more sensitive or there's just variation among the test results. But this does look like a fairly reproducible, fairly sensitive way of testing, which is much more convenient and less expensive than the approach we're using now. So how would you envision that being used? Um, before we get to your question, Steve, something we take for granted as a community is we send a test, we get a result. And what I think these investigators did that's so important for us to pay attention to is to realize that there are many different factors that go into high quality testing. And high quality testing is both the validity and reliability of the test, as well as the accessibility and tolerability of the test. And if we remember two to three months ago, the incredible shortage of personal protective equipment, the shortage of swabs to be able to do the testing. And that's why I think what these investigators did is so important, because it's something we take for granted. Are you infected or not? Yes or no. And what goes into being able to do that is what they have dissected and looked at ways to improve it. And improving it, as Eric mentioned, is who obtains the sample? Does it require a clinician in a clinical environment 
with appropriate infection control, or can it be self-administered? That in and of itself is an important advance as to accessibility of testing and frequency of access to testing. But what is taken for granted is the matrix. You know, what is the swab itself? How does that interfere with the collection and the release of the analyte? What is the transport media? What is the assay running it? And all of those have to be verified for given analyte or testing procedure, as well as different pathogens. And so as simple as this report seems, Eric, as you mentioned, its importance is not trivial because it substantially increases accessibility and diversity of approach to be able to diagnose COVID. A fundamental challenge here is the gold standard. You know, and our presumptive gold standard is the nasopharyngeal swab because that is how we have established who's infected or not. Although reports have suggested that the nasopharyngeal swab in some series may only be 70% sensitive. The specificity is thought to be much higher, but that gets very tricky because compared to what? But what we see from this report is that something much simpler, such as tongue sampling or anterior nares sampling, can reliably correlate with the nasopharyngeal swab. And that, I think, is really important because it has the potential to lower the barrier to more frequent testing of people at risk or concerned with COVID or people who need repeated sampling because initial sampling may, for one reason or another, not be considered definitive. Lindsay, you mentioned the matrix, and my impression was that that was science fiction. But in the real world, I completely agree on the importance of this because it allows this test to be used first more widely and in settings that you couldn't envision before. Remember that right now we're using all sorts of infection control procedures, which are pretty elaborate, like drive-through testing. If people could get tested at home or in a simple setting, that would really change what we do. And as the world is opening back up, and to the extent that testing is used as a criterion for reopening or staying open, it becomes much easier to think about doing testing in settings like businesses, in schools, and such. And I think this sort of approach really could change how available testing is and how we put testing into any algorithm for reopening. And I think an important aspect of this report, it was a single test correlated across multiple sampling frames. Repeated testing, in my view, is a very attractive one for better sensitivity because one test is not always perfect but also my exposure changes over time. And what is the activation energy for me? To, you know, if I want to keep my coworkers, my colleagues, my friends, my family safe, what access do I have to simple testing? And I think that goes for all of us, let alone environments that wanna create strategies to decrease transmission within a workplace or a uh, hospital environment. As simple as this report is, I share the sense that its implications are quite substantial. Uh, this is a step towards, you know, we have home testing for HIV, for pregnancy. This does not get us there, but this is an important step in that direction where the protagonist can obtain the sample themselves. Then you need the next step, which is a readout that doesn't require a laboratory. But that's another imaginable step in the process to lower the activation energy for widespread testing that doesn't 
place a burden on healthcare professionals or on limited supply chain elements such as PPE or specific kinds of swabs like the NP swab. I'd also add the acceptability of testing might improve. For those of us who've had a test for COVID-19, who've had the nasopharyngeal swab, know that it's an uncomfortable procedure. It feels more like a brain biopsy in that the swab goes quite deep through all of the turbinates. And the tests that we're talking about that were employed here are much simpler and don't cause coughing so that there's much less of an infection control issue. So it's going to be easier to convince people to get these tests over and over as well. So Eric, I think that the issue of the brain biopsy and the coughing, I guess, is most memorable from when you were tested. When I was tested, what's most memorable is the choreography. I had to have an appointment. I had to rearrange my schedule. I had to wait online. There was clear spatial distance of those of us waiting to be tested. And it required a fair amount of time to just be able to coordinate. One could imagine that if I were able to do it myself and just drop off the sample in some type of LabCorp or Quest or some other high throughput testing mechanism, perhaps through the mail, one could imagine the increase in accessibility. It then has other variabilities, such as the quality of my sampling myself, transport stability, but those are all addressable problems. I think what we need to be able to do is solve some of the acquisition and laboratory testing components to make them as simple and accessible as possible. And then we can work out the other issues to increase fidelity, to make sure we don't have degradation in the process. But these are important steps in that direction. So on the treatment front, we got some more news this week about hydroxychloroquine. What did we learn? So Steve, we published an interesting study this week. There have been several studies of hydroxychloroquine, as you know, we've published some, and there certainly have been many others published elsewhere. But almost all of these have been experiences, uh, retrospective case series, with or without attempting to match controls. And what we've really been looking for is a randomized controlled trial. So this is the first of the large randomized controlled trials that we've seen. In order to do it as quickly as they did, they used a very interesting, innovative design. And that has tremendous advantages in speed, but some disadvantages in the types of outcomes that could be measured. So this was also asking a somewhat different question. Instead of asking whether hydroxychloroquine was a good treatment for COVID-19, this looked at whether or not using this drug early on in patients who were exposed would prevent or ameliorate symptoms of disease. What they did in order to recruit people for a study of this sort is they went to social media and they went looking for people who'd been exposed to COVID-19. They had a definition of what that was. You had to be within six feet of a patient for at least 10 minutes and not be wearing good protective gear. And that exposure had to be within three days. Once they found these people, they randomized them to receive either hydroxychloroquine or placebo. And they mailed out by overnight shipping either the active drug or placebo, and then followed these people up by surveys all done over the internet. So there is no direct contact at any point in the study between the participants and the investigators. Now, because of that, there was no mandate for testing. And in fact, very few people in the study got tested for whether or not they developed disease. 
So the end point of this study was developing symptoms consistent with COVID-19. And that's a very important point in understanding this. So they followed people up, they had several interim analyses, and after one of these interim analyses, the study was stopped after they'd enrolled about 800 participants, and about 100 of them had developed symptoms consistent with COVID-19, almost all of whom had very mild disease, only two of them ended up being hospitalized. In the end, there was really no evidence that hydroxychloroquine worked. In other words, that it prevented symptoms. However, once again, very few people got tested. A total of only 16 of the 100 patients tested positive by RT-PCR. So it was impossible to draw conclusions about whether or not proven disease was ameliorated or prevented, but the drug had no effect on symptoms, either in preventing them from developing or in keeping those symptoms in the mild category. The one other thing that we learned in this study is that people in the hydroxychloroquine arm were a little more likely to stop their drug because of side effects, but the side effects were really quite mild and there was no evidence of cardiac arrhythmia as the most feared problem with this drug in this study. Eric, you go over the design and results of the study very succinctly. I find these types of studies very easy to criticize. The exposure is not really confirmed. The endpoints not confirmed. Medication compliance is not confirmed. All interaction is remote. However, it all seems reasonable. And the desire to quickly do studies that provide important insight. I think these investigators need to be applauded for coming up with a clever design that was implementable at the time COVID was emerging and we as a community had little idea how best to do infection control and minimize transmission. And those who are infected, all of us wanted them to stay at home unless they had to be in the hospital for care to minimize transmission. And so the investigators designed a study which were able to work in that uncertainty and test a important question. I think there is a challenge in understanding exactly what question they tested. And I just want to highlight that there are different kinds of prevention. You know, there's pre-exposure prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis, early treatment. In HIV, where this has been studied the most, one can take Truvada or other medications, antiretrovirals, prior to exposure to block acquisition. We know with the AZT early experience, after early known exposure, if you take AZT or other antiretrovirals, you can block virus establishing infections such as post-exposure. We do this with rabies and other viruses as well. And then there's early treatment, which is I've been exposed, perhaps virus has started to set up shop, and now I'm treating to prevent disease. What's not quite as clear to me is, was this truly post-exposure prophylaxis or early treatment? It's a semantic issue. The important is that they did the study as designed, they started treatment early with days of likely exposure, and there was no evidence of effect between placebo and hydroxychloroquine. And so I think that in the end, the conclusion is similar. But whether or not they truly tested the question of post-exposure prophylaxis versus early treatment, I think it will be an academic debate. The issue of activity, I think there's little evidence that hydroxychloroquine ameliorated a COVID-like illness 
that occurred in more than 10% of the individuals in a time frame consistent with and suggestive as being related to the exposure of interest. So I think that you know, these data are, in my view, important. They're high quality. They have limitations, but they advance our discussion on what we can do to prevent transmission or illness associated with SARS-CoV-2. Lindsay, I in no way meant to be critical of the study. If it came across that way, that certainly isn't the case. I think it was actually quite clever to get it done so quickly. And what we need now are quick answers. And what we need are quick answers done at the highest quality possible. And this was a good compromise, I think, between getting absolute confidence in diagnoses and learning what we need to know right now. Does it close the door on future studies of this agent? It's certainly not encouraging, but I think it doesn't because I think there is still room to do those studies and they're going on right now. So we were likely to learn more, but I think this was an important step along the way. Agreed. And just as per our earlier conversation, imagine if when they started this study, they had the ability to do a self-administered nasal swab that could be mailed in. Might that have been a solution to a higher resolution assessment of the endpoint? On the other hand, I wouldn't want them to wait until this technology is developed because that would have cost a month or two in the need to develop information that helps inform us. I mean, there are many more studies that one could imagine doing based on these data and technologic advances. But I think advances on the diagnostic front and the therapeutic front are interdigitated in how to generate higher quality evidence. And I think as things are improved, they should be incorporated into studies. But at the time that the authors launched this study, that technology was not available. So what's left to learn about hydroxychloroquine and when and how are we going to learn it? I think, Steve, that as we've mentioned before, the kinds of trials that we've been getting still are consistent with hydroxychloroquine having an effect, but the effect is not enormous. And if that's the case, if, for example, in this study, it really decreased the number of proven infections as opposed to syndromic diagnoses, then we might well have missed it. And finding smaller effect sizes that could still be important still requires a well-controlled, rather large, randomized controlled trial. Those are going on. They're more problematic to complete now than they have been in the past for a few reasons. One of the major ones is the number of cases is decreasing. So the enrollment in all of these studies is decreasing, although in parts of the world, they're still increasing. So there's still the opportunity to get more patients. And also the standard of care changes through the course of a study, and that may change what a control group looks like. But with all that, it would still be very useful to know if we are seeing some effect from this drug. Steve and Eric, I think it is challenging to sort out what are the key next steps given the emerging data associated with hydroxychloroquine. However, I remain concerned about observational data and the impact of clinical judgment on treatment, because I don't believe that clinical practice is random, though at times it may appear that way. So I do think that it's important for us to think carefully about the quality of the data emerging. 
If there were an obvious effect, such as a treatment for rabies and an individual survives, I think all of us have been and would be very impressed given the uniform lethality of that condition. However, with COVID-19, there is such an unevenness of clinical evolution and outcome and in a differential practice patterns of how medications are used that even though the data are emerging consistent with a modest effect at best of hydroxychloroquine or perhaps no effect at all, I am somewhat concerned that the observational data are not as definitive as we'd like them to be, which is why a study like this, which is an RCT, even though it has its weaknesses associated with case confirmation, I think is really important in filling in important gaps in our knowledge, minimizing bias. And Eric, as you mentioned, the ongoing uh, randomized studies with hydroxychloroquine, I think, are equally as important to fill in gaps in our knowledge and minimize potential bias. Whether or not these studies can be done is a question that the investigator study teams will be looking at, given case counts, alternative therapies, and perceptions of this illness. But I think it's worthwhile for all of those communities to carefully look at the level of certainty of the evidence and where in the disease the treatment's being deployed to determine if there might still be a benefit that can be detected. So I'm not sure, Steve, that the book is completely closed on hydroxychloroquine. I think we have to look at the evidence carefully. But as this study shows, there isn't an obvious large effect when used in this way. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.